Welcome to Journal Spotting. Keen to go to the British Thoracic Society's Winter Conference, but hey, you know Journal Spotting have it covered, so you want to put your feet up and relax? Journal Junkies, your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome listeners to part two of our BTS coverage. Journal Spotting managed to sneak into the BTS winter meeting. I, I say sneak in, I probably should clarify, we did actually buy tickets. And now we've put together two helpful podcasts or episodes for those of you that want to pick up on the pearls of pulmonology presented. Maybe you were there and you want to catch up on things you didn't see, or maybe you didn't manage to attend and you want to hear what was said. If you haven't already, go and listen to part one, which explains the format of these podcasts and covers COVID top tips, plural facts, post-TB lung, circadian rhythms, and more. Brilliant. So this episode will focus more on uh, things like pollution and air quality and how this is really severely impacting on our health. The reason we split these episodes like this is that these seem to be the two key themes from the conference, as these are basically the two most important health crises we are dealing with globally at present. And they both just happen to affect the lungs. Mm, you're not going to be out of a job for a while, are you, Bonnie? <laughs> I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. It's going to keep our podcast going too, probably. So... <laughs> Today, we will cover air pollution and the havoc it is causing in the UK, in Africa, and in the world at large. We discuss the cost of the NHS amongst all this, particularly focusing on inhalers. We talk about what we can all do about it and why there is reason to be hopeful if we pull our fingers out and put our money where it needs to be, that is. Very exciting. It's going to be a cracking episode. There are some really excellent speakers that are here to present. As always, we'd love your feedback on this, especially as this is the first time we've covered a conference and maybe you'd like us to sneak into a few more. So feel free to get in touch via our email with thoughts and ideas, journalspotting at gmail.com, Twitter, or our recently upgraded website, www.journalspotting.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Dr. Laura Jane Smith. I'm a consultant in respiratory medicine at King's College Hospital, London. It's great to be on the podcast, sharing my experience at BTS. I've been asked to share an interesting fact about myself. Um, so I'm going to tell you that I uh, use a lot of my lockdown time to make things. Um, I've always used art as a way to manage stress and anxiety. And I've been crocheting during the pandemic and I've crocheted a coronavirus which now lives in my office and is available to punch when COVID's really causing problems in the world so that's most days. Um, so I have to admit I was a bit sceptical about the online BTS and about my ability to attend any of it but I did manage to catch a few sessions around the meetings, clinics and MDMs that I was at um, and I even watched a session queuing for my second COVID vaccine dose and I thought it was a great platform and actually a really great meeting. Um, I want to share with you a little from the journal club that I attended on Thursday morning, which focused on the paper Impact of London's Low Emission Zone on Air Quality and Children's Respiratory Health, a Sequential Annual Cross-Sectional Study. This was uh, from Lancet Public Health and was presented by Dr Ian Mudway from the MRC Centre for Environment and Health at Imperial um, and one of the study's authors. I have an interest in the effects of air pollution on health and I know it can be quite difficult for clinicians as the papers are often full of loads of modelling and there are quite a lot of complexities in averaging air pollution over time 
or in calculating total exposures. Um, there's also the need to adjust for factors like weather, climate and other things. And it be, can be quite tricky. The papers can be quite dense. There are also different components of air pollution, which have different emission sources and impacts. Um, Ian did a really great job of summarising the background to measuring air pollution in urban environments and what was previously known about low emission zones, which this paper focused on. He cited a Cochrane review from 2019, which really highlights the heterogeneity of interventions, outcomes and methods. And Ian also pointed out that a lot of the research relies on modelling and extrapolates the health benefits from any reductions in air pollution, when really there's an important need to measure health outcomes to see if these impacts really make a difference. Um, the question really is, uh, low emission zones sound like a good idea, but do they actually reduce air pollution? And does that lead to improvements in health? And Ian's group set out to measure this in London by measuring air quality and children's respiratory health before and after the introduction of London's low emission zones. Anyone who's done any research knows that the road is not always straight and unexpected problems are common, but most people's research is not scuppered directly by Boris Johnson. Mayor at the time, Johnson cancelled the second phase of the low emission zone, then under pressure from groups, uh, reinstated the plan at a delay. So the research team, you can imagine, had to scratch around for extra funding to extend their study, but thankfully they were able to do that. I thought this was a really great demonstration of the challenges of research outside the lab in a very complex and ever-changing real world. And it's a real credit to the team that they were able to still complete the study. So the team completed a sequential annual cross-sectional study of just over 2,000 children aged 8 to 9 years in 2009 to 10 and in 2013 to 14 in central London. The low emission zone was introduced in 2008. They looked at NO2, PM2.5, so particulate matter 2.5, and PM10, and these are all components of air pollution, with NO2 primarily coming from traffic and particulate matter from other sources as well. And they measured post-bronchodilator FEV1, FVC, and respiratory and allergic symptoms, so all really relevant outcomes. They found that the percentage of children living at addresses exceeding the EU limit value for annual NO2 fell from 99% in 2009 to 34% in 2013. NO2 levels fell at roadside and also some background sites for NO2, but not PM2.5, and the result for PM10 was equivocal. They did find that smaller lung volumes were associated with higher annual air pollutant exposures, but over the period of study, there was no reduction in the percentage of children with small lungs, despite improvements in air quality during the implementation of the low emission zone. So as I said, NO2 is mainly from traffic, and it makes sense that this fell as the highly polluting traffic was reduced in the low emission zone. PM comes from a range of sources with traffic contributing up to 25%, so we'd expect this to be less impacted. An important source of particulate matter is wood-burning stoves in residential homes, and this has been in the news recently. So if you have one in your home, you might consider switching to a more planet-friendly heating system. Of note, if the WHO limits had been used, uh, a much higher proportion of children would have been living with exposures above what's called a safe limit. There really is no safe limit of air pollution, and it's a major concern that children are not reaching their full lung capacity, storing up problems for the future. 
This study didn't find a health improvement over this time, suggesting that interventions that deliver larger reductions in emissions might be needed to see such an effect. But it didn't measure other outcomes such as asthma exacerbations or long-term risks for things like cardiovascular disease or cognitive effects, all of which have been linked to air pollution. And there's an excellent RCP report um, which looks into this and summarises the evidence to date. There were some really interesting questions in the discussion about the methods and outcomes. Low traffic neighbourhoods, or those plant plots, uh, as they were called, were discussed. There are strong views on LTNs, and you only need to glance at Twitter to see that. Some people argue that LTNs reduce pollution and increase walking and cycling. Others argue that they just displace traffic to surrounding roads, which then suffer an increase in air pollution. There have been concerns raised that more affluent areas benefit and poorer areas suffer, increasing social and health inequalities. Ian pointed out that data from the Netherlands showed that well-designed and implemented LTNs reduce traffic overall over time, but that phrase well-designed and implemented is really key and there has perhaps not been sufficient consultation in the London schemes introduced recently. He was clear, however, that LTNs are not a primary means of reducing air pollution and other strategies are needed. This was a great discussion of a really interesting study looking at an increasingly important area of respiratory health. It was definitely worth getting up early for, and I hope that this brief summary will inspire your listeners to dig deeper into air pollution research and its health effects. Another brilliant session I want to was entitled Africa's Respiratory Big Five, and again was a series of lectures on this. We'll hear from Jamila Megji separately. He was going to tell us about her fascinating talk. There's a couple of others I thought were worth highlighting. So one of them was Ambient Air Pollution and Respiratory Disease, and this was by uh, Dr. Anissa Vanka. And again, it's all based in Africa, and we do not think about air pollution in Africa or anywhere enough, okay? So air pollution is often termed the new tobacco for a number of reasons because of the effect on our health and the way that companies and organisations are trying to cover it up. And air pollution has an enormous impact on our health and parts of Africa appear hardest hit, especially in sub-Saharan regions. Sources of air pollution in these areas include ambient, which is mainly outdoors, industry, traffic, that sort of thing, and household. And this is mainly the burning of fossil fuels for cooking or heat in the house. The WHO says coal is the world's most polluting fuel by far and the largest producer and burner of coal appears to be South Africa. Air pollution can affect us in many many ways. Firstly it can act locally on the respiratory system causing things like inflammation, increased risk of infection and many other diseases associated with that and systemically via ultrafine particles entering our bloodstream, causing inflammation, cardiovascular disease, all sorts. Interestingly, in South Africa, whilst more than 90% of homes have electricity, about 30% of all homes use alternative fuels for cooking. This is due to the cost of electricity. They came with some really interesting findings from a series of studies, such as if you're exposed to indoor air pollution in pregnancy, they could detect impaired lung function from a variety of parameters at both six weeks and two years after birth. Interestingly, this was found to be much worse if the patient or the child showed a genetic susceptibility to asthma. So people who are susceptible to asthma seem to be affected by air pollution, especially prenatally, much more. Also, 
Apparently, the risk of TB is much higher in areas of high air pollution compared to controls. I'm not sure if this is because they live in crowded areas and have all these sorts of confounders, or if there is something related to the air pollution, which means they're more likely to catch TB. But again, another fascinating area. From a positive on the study, there are things which show benefit, such as the use of clean burning stoves um, can show a clinical benefit in children with reduced symptoms. And studies have shown that by reducing air pollution, you can have a huge impact on the health, even within a few weeks with reduced symptoms, reduced hospitalizations, and even reduced cardiovascular disease, all within about a six-week period. Their final message was, the health benefits always outweigh any costs of reducing air pollution. I thought it was a fantastic talk. Next up, I'm just going to quickly discuss a, a talk um, by Professor Andrew Bush about, and it was entitled, Non-Communicable Respiratory Disease, in brackets, asthma and COPD, across the life course. Now, there's loads of interesting facts and figures, and he's a, a, a brilliant speaker. And there were a few fascinating, if not slightly controversial points, which I'm going to, to go because they were interesting. So I think the first one I'll briefly mention is that he said, by adult age, treatment of obstructive airways disease is essentially palliative. Okay, He feels the damage is already done early in life, especially in childhood, and essentially everything else is just symptom control, and that's how we should be looking at it. Feel free to disagree. <laughs> he then discussed some data from 27,000 participants, which were followed up in Africa um, with spirometry. And with this evidence, they showed that smoking cigarettes did not lead to accelerated lung decline in adults. His idea was that all the damage was caused early on in life, in childhood, and even pre birth. But he found that smoking did not cause an accelerated decline in your spirometry. Of course, there are other reasons to stop smoking, cardiovascular disease, cancer, that sort of thing. I must say that whilst this is really interesting, and I always love a good discussion and people challenging the norm, I'm not sure if that really goes alongside a lot of other evidence which shows that Exposure to smoke in a younger age isn't as harmful as later on. In fact, it's the opposite to some of the evidence I've heard cited elsewhere. But, as I say, it's always interesting at the BTS, and it shows that there are very few absolute facts. Hello, my name is Claire McBrien. I'm a respiratory registrar in London at King's Hospital and my uh, primary uh, area of interest is asthma, but also my two cats, Lola and Blue. And the topic that I'm presenting today is a, about a short presentation, uh, an assessment of short-acting beta-2 agonist use and subsequent greenhouse gas emissions in five European countries and the consequences of their potential overuse for asthma in the UK. Uh, the reason I find this interesting is because uh, we all know that overuse of short-acting beta agonists in asthma is a bad thing because it means that your patient's symptoms are not well controlled and they are therefore at risk of further exacerbations and potentially even death. But it hadn't truly hit me how bad that was for the environment as well. I think most of us are aware of the change in propellant from CFCs to HFCs, which mean that inhalers are no longer making a big hole in the ozone layer. However, short-acting beta agonist inhalers still have a big environmental impact due to their carbon footprint. This study looked at several countries across Europe, including the UK, 
And as always in these types of studies, the UK came out at the bottom of the league table. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, that means that we use more short-acting beta agonist inhalers than we do preventer inhalers for asthma. That is true across Europe in that the figures are there more than 50% SABOs compared to preventers. However, in the UK, this figure is about 70%. So this means that there are a lot of patients who overuse SABOs, and this definition was taken to mean three or more SABA inhalers over the course of a year. The outcome of this is that these patients clearly aren't experiencing good asthma control, but also we are producing a lot of carbon dioxide in the production of these SABA inhalers. In the UK, extrapolation of these figures results in a production of 250,000 tonnes of CO2 equivalent annually. That is a a big impact on uh, the global warming crisis that we're going through. And the way this will change my practice is that I will think uh, even more carefully about patients who are overusing SABAs and try to have an impact on that and try to make sure that their asthma is better controlled and that they don't require so many SABAs. The other thing that we can all think about is whether we're using the right device for our patients. And that may include changing from MDI inhalers to dry powder inhalers, which have a lower impact on the environment. So the thing I'm taking away from this is that good asthma control is good for your patient and good for the environment. So on a Thursday, I went to a spoken session which was entitled Cough and Carbon, which is essentially a series of lectures on this subject. And rather than go through each each of the lectures, I'm just going to bring out some of the key points which I've got from this and I've taken away from this. Number one is something which a lot of us know, is that the NHS contributes to about 5% of the UK carbon footprint. Now, also interesting, which came up in this talk, is that inhalers contribute about 4% of the NHS's carbon footprint. So that's just over 1 in 20, 1 in 25 of all the carbon export from the NHS comes from inhalers. That's pretty crazy. Meter dose inhalers or MDIs have a very high carbon footprint as they contain hydrofluoroalkane propellants which essentially are a greenhouse gas. On top of that we give out a lot of them, people don't use them properly, people don't even use them at all um, as there's a lot of plastic waste which isn't getting recycled for the majority of the time. Now this is interesting as Dry powder inhalers, which do not contain that greenhouse gas, make up only about 30% of our inhaler use in the UK, um, which is much lower than most of Europe. And they had somebody from Finland there who was saying that they use dry powder inhalers or DPIs far more frequently. They discussed a Salford lung study, which compared combination DPIs with standard of care. And this showed a saving of about 141 kilograms of CO2 per patient per year without any detrimental effect on health. And this was in asthma patients. Another thing which came out of this is that they did patients and patient questionnaires and they found that patients were, one, unaware that they can't put their inhaler into the recycling bin. Two, often the inhalers had loads of medication left on it before they threw it away. And three, apparently, this is something I didn't even know, you can take inhalers back to your pharmacy and they will recycle them, or at least most places will do. Again, this is something which in Europe and notably in Finland, is common practice, but it's very rarely done in the UK. 
So, hi, my name is Vicky Taylor. I'm one of the respiratory trainees in South London. So the ways I've been getting through lockdown, well, during the first uh, lockdown, when the skies, the skies were sunny and the roads were clear, I got heavily back into road biking and enjoyed zooming about the streets of South London and surrounding countryside. Um, but during the second lockdown, um, the skies have not been so sunny and the roads have not been empty. And so I have taken up knitting instead. Um, thanks for that, Vicky. I'm Emma Lombard and I'm about to start as a respiratory trainee in uh, KSS. And on the topic of lockdowns, the first lockdown I was really good, spent lots of time outside, started getting fit, um, took up running again, really productive. This lockdown, I've taken up eating more chocolate every day. Chocolate orange every few days gets me through the lockdown. Uh, so we um, have been attending the BTS conference today and both felt that there was one lecture that was particularly interesting which was given by Prof Eakins who's a professor of resources and environmental policy at UCL. It was all about climate change and moving towards a more sustainable economy um, which isn't directly related to respiratory medicine but uh, it does impact us all and I think um, as respiratory physicians we are taking a particular interest in kind of air quality and in the environment at large so I think it is, it is relevant to us and to everybody else as well. So uh, this was a super interesting talk I think just gripped both of our interests a little bit and it was really well delivered talking about the challenges posed by climate change and the challenges we face as, as a global community to become net zero um, in terms of kind of carbon emissions. Um, and he started the talk really by talking about the the risks posed by climate change and where we are at the moment. Um, and obviously we all are well aware of the risks of climate change to both the UK and, and the world and, and all of the changes that that could cause. Um, and the, the currently there's a 0.3% risk that global temperatures could increase by six degrees, which is a rather alarming figure. I think we've all heard of the two degree target, make sure temperatures don't rise more than two degrees, but six degrees is quite a scary number. And I think the conclusion is that that would be pretty catastrophic for the world um, and our global ecosystems. And, and I really like the comparisons that he made at that point to kind of different aspects of our lives and how we approach risk and as a society what we accept is a reasonable risk to take and actually a 0.3 percent risk of something happening if you take flying for example that would mean that one in every 360 flights would result in a crash and i don't know about you vicky but i would not be getting on a plane if that was the case no certainly not but overall the talk was really quite hopeful um, and he had a number of hopeful messages about especially about the uk um, and one of the things he covered was that, you know, in the UK since 1990, our UK carbon emissions have decreased despite ongoing economic growth. And this was really the main point of his talk, which, which was that simply by decarbonising the economy, it doesn't, doesn't have to mean that our economy is going to stop growing. So there's lots of good news in his talk about how renewable energy, wind and solar power were becoming much cheaper. And this is an ongoing downward trend in their costs. And battery technology in particular has become dramatically cheaper over the last few years. Um, another positive message he had was that, you know, by investing in de decarbonising the economy, it's uh, going to create new industries and new jobs, which is likely to promote economic growth. That's something that he addressed. And actually, there's quite a lot of evidence out there and models out there to suggest that 
in the long term, we would have a growth in our economy and actually it would have a positive impact on our GDP, um, which is not something that I've seen much about before in the media, which was really positive to see actual numbers related to that, which is really good. And I think part of that is that the impact that these fossil fuel and huge energy companies have at the moment is that they have an influence over the media, kind of the, the information and misinformation that's spread. Um, and also, they, you know, they also have an impact on, on policymakers and politicians and the decisions they're making. They're put under a lot of pressure, I think, um, by these companies about here and now decisions and short term decisions. And I think that's one of the barriers that our policymakers really need to, to kind of face off and um, try and make longer term decisions on. Yeah, I think one of the um, numbers you gave was that um, by moving, well, there's been some modelling done, and by moving towards a decarbonised economy, it would only minim- minimally impact our GDP. So it might set back GDP growth by one year by the time we get to 2050, which really isn't a huge impact. And those models haven't even taken into account the potential economic cost of not addressing climate change, which I think we can all see is likely to be very significant. He was talking about this idea of moving from being a a consumer economy to an investment economy, which I have to say had me a bit stumped. But um, I've been to speak to my husband who has got an economics degree and he was explaining to me a bit about what, what that means. And I think basically it means just moving towards having a longer term view of things. So moving away from being focused on day-to-day needs and wants and consumerism to as a society taking collective responsibility and being able to see into the future and what might be better for us in the long term. Yeah, and I think one of the other things he used that was a nice analogy was, you know, you, you, we all spend money now to insure against the future, but there seems to be a resistance to do that when it comes to climate change, which I, he was saying that it's difficult to actually understand. We all, you know, you're, we're happy to pay for travel insurance and, and health insurance when we go on our holidays, but so why wouldn't we be happy to spend money now in order to kind of ensure our future, um, which I thought was a really interesting way of looking at things. And he also talked about the, the other benefits that improving our um, carbon emissions would bring in terms of air pollution, the health benefits of that, but also the other industries that would grow um, and then contribute to our economy. So obviously the tech industry is already growing hugely, the amount of research going on there um, and kind of how our services would have to change. And I think one of the, the points he also raised was that actually as the UK kind of is doing really well in this at the moment, it's something that we could try and become like a bit of an expert in. And that's something that we could use as a, as a way of being kind of on an international platform to, to help other countries and use that as another way to expand our economy. Finally, when he got to the questions at the end, there was a really interesting discussion about, is it fair on a global stance to say, look, everybody should move away from carbon use. Is that fair on the newer developing economies who haven't had the opportunity to to grow so much by using carbon? We've used it all up to, you know, advance our economies. And there was a, a really interesting discussion there about how actually the newer technologies that we've developed should be offered and shared with developing economies to make sure that that they can grow also but using newer technologies renewables rather than having to rely on carbon economies the way that that we have um so for me the kind of key take home is that there is hope i found it a really positive um almost inspiring well 
not almost inspiring, definitely inspiring talk on how we can combat this issue and that it's not all doom and gloom and disaster. There is a way out and actually the narrative can be quite positive. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely with that. I think it was really positive and it's really nice to hear something positive that kind of pushes you forward rather than just builds up more anxiety about this potential problem that's coming on. And I think, um, I guess my take home messages is that, you know, there's kind of, it's kind of a two pronged approach. There are changes you can make on an individual level, but also there has to be the political will and we have to try and put, put pressure on, on governments to, to actually make policy changes that will move things forward. So I would encourage everybody to try and do that in any way they can. Well, that, John, is it. It's been a whirlwind getting all of this done in the last weekend. Um, John, thank you so much for your help, coordinating recording, and thanks to all of our brilliant journal spotting beavers who went to the talks and summarised them really expertly for us. So, for the last time from the British Thoracic Society conference, John, can you give us your top take-home points from this episode? Yeah, um, there's a lot here, Barney. Firstly, I'm wondering, have I made the wrong career choice? Because uh, that was brilliant. And yeah, maybe this cardiology training is not for me. But more specifically on the episode, I was really struck by how much of an issue air pollution clearly is. I mean, I obviously know that it's an issue, but just to hear the details in some of these presentations and how badly it's affecting lungs, you know, here in the UK and all over the world was really striking. And as I live next to one of the busiest roads in the UK, um, I definitely took note. So that was excellent. Yeah, totally agree, John. It's such a huge topic. And you can see why the British Thoracic Society covered it so thoroughly. For me, it's given me a huge amount to think about from a, well, personal, I suppose, and, and from a healthcare and lung perspective. Loads of interesting facts. I loved all those talks and discussions about does smoking even accelerate lung damage in adults? I mean, yeah, don't take that as your take home, but it's so interesting. Also, I am going to try my hardest to get everyone on a dry powdered inhaler and off the MDIs as uh, that's just one of the things we can all do. Great episode, mate. It's been, it's been a blast. It's been great fun. Been excellent. Yeah, virtual conferences. It's the future. It's the way forward and uh, we will be covering more in the future. All the best. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and the rest of our fantastic speakers. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, graphics man Costa, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave us a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.